0: I felt that people in Philly want to change. You know, this old guard, this political cronyism, you know, you hear about another elected leader going to jail like every other month, people are
1: tired of that. You're listening to Philly Who, the podcast that tells the stories of the doers, thinkers, and performers of Philadelphia. My name is Kevin Schmidlin, and today I'm chatting with Philadelphia City Controller, Rebecca Reinhardt. In January 2018, Rebecca was sworn in as the first woman city controller in Philadelphia history. Before that, she served as Mayor Kenney's Chief Administration Officer, and during the Nutter Administration, she served as Treasurer and then Budget Director. In this episode, you'll hear how Rebecca initially worked in finance on Wall Street. After years of seeing governments being taken advantage of by the private sector, she quit and took a huge pay cut to enter public service. That decision to leave Bear Stearns in the spring of 2008 turned out to be pretty lucky.
0: I just remember being on a conference call about a bond deal and someone saying, well, with the news about Bear going under today. And I was like, excuse me?
1: What did you just say? She would become treasurer of Philadelphia at the height of the Great Recession. And as you'll hear, she had to make some tough calls to get the city through it.
0: Like, deal with it. <laughs> and that's what we did. We didn't let anyone. I was like, we're not paying interest. Just like, deal with it. Like, be a good corporate citizen. We're in this crisis together.
1: Eventually, she craved the ability to affect more change for Philadelphia. So she ran for office and took on an incumbent.
0: And I said, you voted for me. You're wearing an Alan Buckovitz t-shirt. He said, "Yeah, they're paying me, but I'm voting for you." <laughs> and I thought, "Oh my God, I might actually win this."
1: All this and more with city controller Rebecca Reinhardt now on Philly Who. So for those who may not know, the city controller's office is responsible for auditing pretty much everything in Philadelphia government, from spending to accounting, hiring to firing, what the city does and how it does it. So far since being elected, controller Reinhardt's office has audited the PPA, the 10-year property tax abatement, and even the city's sexual misconduct policies, among other things. Her job is to make sure that everyone is doing things by the book, which is fitting, given her experience managing the city's books. But while her path to elected office was not that of traditional politics, she literally applied to be Philly treasurer, interviewed, and got the job, her skills for balancing the books and keeping things running as they should were noticed even when she was a teenager, when she worked at an aquarium as a fish catcher.
0: Hold on, you can't laugh at this, come on. Fish catcher is the entry-level job at Martin's Aquarium. And you're in charge of getting people their fish. So if you come in, you know, with your kids, you need a few goldfish or this. There's a job called fish catcher. Okay, so I had that for not very long. In like a month or two, they put me on the cash register.
1: <laughs> were you good at catching fish?
0: Um, I was okay. I, I dropped a few on the floor, so there were a few <laughs> oh, like no. flipping fish. But you know, I got better at it. But once they put me on the cash register, and I could balance the books when I was in high school, I could do it pretty pretty well, and I was very conscientious about it. So they
1: just kept me on the cash register. So part of your job as a a cashier was to balance books?
0: Yes, well, so I started as like the junior cashier, you know, in high school, and then I started closing out the books. And you know, so that if you're, you know, a dollar or two off, it would be like, where did it go?
1: So you went up to college in Vermont?
0: I went to Middlebury College up in Vermont, uh, which uh, was great. Very small college.
1: So when you graduated from Middlebury, someone said, Rebecca, what's your plan? What are you going to do?
0: Yeah, I didn't have a good plan, honestly. What would you have said? When I graduated, I really didn't know. And so I ended up actually working in publishing for a few years right out of college. And What kind of publishing? Um, Textbook publishing. And this is why my, my story is a little bit maybe non-traditional for an elected okay. official. But... I didn't know. I mean, I had a joint major in college of environmental studies and English. So really liberal arts, you know, didn't know really what I wanted to do. And I took a lot of political science in college in sort of my junior and senior years of college. And I really loved that. So I came back actually to Philadelphia and I came home and I was like, I don't really know what I'm doing. I mean, it's sort of like this... When when people come to me and say that, you know, that they don't know what they want to do, I said, it's a completely normal yes. thing. So I remember having a conversation with my uncle at the time about what I was doing, like what I wanted to do. And it was this big family conversation around the table <laughs> because I applied to the Peace Corps as well and got in.
1: What was your family saying?
0: My family basically said, you know, make a list of the things that you've liked and not liked in school, in your work experience. And then let's look at the list of things you liked and try to narrow down what that is. I mean, this is really like, I didn't know what I wanted to do, but then- That's a
1: great way to approach it though.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: What did you put down that you had liked?
0: So I thought back in terms of what I'd liked, probably my favorite classes in college were my political science classes. I remember thinking to myself, oh, this is sort of strange because I didn't major in it, but I would always take that poli-sci class when I could squeeze it in, you know, you know, urban politics or American politics or sometimes international studies. And the one professor I kept in touch with after college was my poli-sci professor. So I said, you know, I have this interest in that area that maybe I need to do something with. And so I took that with me and said, okay, well, Maybe I'll go back to school and I'll go uh, get a graduate degree to sort of refocus myself. And that's when I started looking at public administration, public policy schools, and settled on Columbia.
1: So you have the master's in in public administration. Now, where does the finance piece yeah. come in? Are we going? Are we going all the way back to the aquarium? or <laughs> did you stay involved in finance the so, whole time?
0: No, so I've always liked math. Sort of my mom was a math teacher. Yeah. So I was always good at math, but never really thought, never knew what I could do with it. You know, I was the kid in class always asking, why are we doing this? What's the point of this equation?
1: Because it's in the book.
0: (laughs) Right, that's what teachers would always say that. Well, because we need to learn it. I was the annoying kid in the class through a lot of uh, high school, I think, in math. But then when I got to grad school, I got to Columbia thinking I was gonna do an environmental track, environmental
1: policy. Right, because your first degree, yeah. you majored in…
0: Right, environmental studies. So, but I quickly realized once I got there that from the first month or two of work that where the power was, the, the ability to really influence and change things was in the budget, was in understanding and controlling the finances. Because if you understand and control the finances, you can decide where the money's flowing, which is what gets funded and what doesn't and where the priorities are. So I pretty quickly moved, shifted over to um, the finance and budget track and thought I could advance any types of policies as long as I understand the numbers and I could use this skill that I have in math to work with that. So that's sort of how I came to that. And I didn't perhaps realize right away what that job could be right out of grad school in the public sector. So that's why I went into uh, the private sector right away.
1: So yeah, you switched over to Bear Stearns.
0: I worked at Fitch for four or five years. Which was a great experience. I covered the Southeast United States and covered city of Miami, and, Atlanta. And your job
1: there was to just apply credit? The no, my
0: job at Fitch was to analyze the credit strength or uh, the financial strength of municipalities and assign a bond rating. And I liked it. I liked it. I did it for a while. I did it for four or five years. And then I, I switched over to Bear Stearns. Yeah,
1: so what, what brought you there?
0: I think I was just getting more and more into this private sector track, and Bear Stearns or getting sort of deeper into Wall Street felt like a natural progression. But when I went to work for Bear Stearns, I went to work to analyze credit, okay. uh, but to work on uh, municipal uh, derivatives. It's a little complicated Um financial agreements between Wall Street banks and local governments. And I went there just, and I realized I was getting sort of sucked deeper and deeper into the private sector and away from sort of this
1: public policy work. And did that bother you?
0: At first, it was just sort of in the back of my head.
1: Kind of like, "Uh oh, here we go.
0: (laughs) Yeah. I'm like, you know, maybe this, you know, it wasn't that much of a concerted decision or effort that moving from Fitch to Bear, It was more of like, oh, an opportunity came up, and I'm like, oh, yeah, I'll take it, it's a promotion, yeah, yeah. Uh, It was a completely different culture, very, very cutthroat and competitive and at Bear compared to Fitch Ratings, Mm -hmm. which I'm a competitive person, so in some ways I thrive on that because I can be, I'm like, oh, okay, this is the way this operates, I can do this. Uh, So the competitive nature I liked about it, I got promoted to be a managing director at Bear Stearns after a year. uh, But it started to bother me more and more that I was working on the Wall Street side because I saw over and over again how governments did not understand the deals they were entering into and they didn't understand the cost and the risk. And Bear Stearns wasn't worse than any other Wall Street bank. I mean, there were there were worse ones. I just felt like, ah, oh, this government shouldn't be doing this. Yeah.
1: So when you hear that voice in your head, is your first reaction to act, or is it something that you kind of have to hear over and over before you eventually take action on?
0: I started by internally at Bear Stearns, sometimes saying, does this government understand this? Have you, like calling up the trading desk, did you have a conversation? with them to explain the risks that they're taking on.
1: And what would they say?
0: um, Well, that's, you know, sometimes they'd say, you know what, the financial advisor did explain it, or it's not our job, it's, you know, but I was, I started to push a little bit. uh, Now, if it was really inappropriate, you know, if it was, you know, a 40-bed hospital, we did trades with, at Bear Stearns, with small hospitals, too. Some of the people, like, they really didn't understand that stuff. And I would just say, this is not, I would raise it. I would say like-
1: We can't do this. I
0: I don't feel comfortable with this. I think though, I realized at some point that my belief system was not one (laughs) with with Wall Street, right? It just, and I said, you know, I need to leave. I need to use my financial knowledge and my experience on Wall Street to help government. I need to be on that other side.
1: So I can't help but notice that your time at Bear Stearns ended in two thousand eight. Yeah. Did you leave Bear Stearns, or did Bear Stearns leave you?
0: I. This was maybe one of the luckiest moments in my life that I. I left about three weeks before it collapsed. When I was leaving, people thought I was nuts. There.
1: Yeah. So how did you announce it? How did people react?
0: People thought it was really weird that I would want to leave. You know, look, I, I left to come to come back to Philly mm-hmm. and uh, to work for Mayor Nutter, the new mayor, and. My salary was more than cut in half. I mean, Mayor Nutter used to joke around that I took the largest pay cut to join his administration of anyone. Um, So people at Bear Stearns were like, what are you doing? One or two people understood it. But I I just said, look, I want to do this. I want to help government. I think government needs to make better financial decisions. I think people deserve a better government. And what better person to do that than me? Because I've been here in Wall Street and know what, what that is. Right. But most people thought I was pretty crazy.
1: How did you have the connection to get that job? How were you offered the yeah. job?
0: Yeah. So I actually just started calling people. I ended up speaking with a lawyer at one of the law firms in Philly who said, oh, I know the brother of the person who was just announced to be finance director. Do you want me to pass along your resume? I mean, it was a really...
1: It sounds like there are quite a few degrees of connection.
0: Connection and separation. I mean, no one knew me in the political world in Philadelphia. So I was a risk. I yes. was a big how, risk. How the heck
1: does somebody who nobody knows get the job as city treasurer?
0: Well, right. So what happened was the finance director, Rob Debeau, um, interviewed me up in New York. I went through a few rounds. There was the transition team interviews. There were different lawyers from Philly. I mean, I've heard people say, oh, you know, she's the best random hire we made. (laughs) Random meaning, you know, that I didn't, I wasn't connected to anyone. But I had, look, I interviewed just like a normal person interviews for a job. I I came in as deputy finance director. And after two or three months, I was made the treasurer. Basically, the treasurer responsibilities were split after Corey Kemp went to jail. And... One of the positive things about what Mayor Nutter did at the beginning of his term was really pull in people from different places. Yeah. You know, it was just lucky.
1: How did you feel the moment that you were offered the treasurer job?
0: You know, I felt good about it. I think there's always this feeling of, oh, I probably don't know everything I need to know. But then who does, you know, who does? And why not anyone else for the job than me? So I just leaned in and and embraced it.
1: Do you remember when you found out that Bear Stearns folded?
0: Yes, I actually do. I do, because I even remember the room I was in. Tell me about it. I just remember being on a conference call about a bond deal and someone saying, well, with the news about Bear going under today. And I was like, excuse me, what did you just say? Bear went, I'm like, what? Like, I I couldn't even believe it. I mean, I knew when I was at Bear, there was a lot of stress around liquidity. But no one thought the company would would disappear, go under. Um, I, I still remember the exact chair I was in in this conference room on the thirteenth floor.
1: You must have been like, "Oh my goodness, how did I dodge this?"
0: <laughs> I know. I was, and all I could think of is, "Wow!" And all those people at Bear Stearns thought I was the crazy one for leaving. I
1: know the chief risk now officer. Actually,
0: yeah, right. <laughs> I know. I know. Uh, he landed pretty well, but um,
1: so you become city treasurer mm-hmm. at the beginning of the Great Recession. Mm-hmm. When things are going bad, yeah. you're now at the helm right. of one of the what sixth, fifth largest cities mm-hmm. in the US. Mm-hmm. What's going through your mind? Are you worried? Are you wringing your hands at the challenge? Do you understand what's coming at you at that point?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that to me, the bigger the challenge, the more I like it. Mm. So I'm always pushing forward for something that is a challenge, if if something's not a challenge, then I need to go find another challenge. So when I got to the city of Philadelphia as the treasurer and I said, okay, I need all of the contracts, all of the, they're called ISDAs, but these standard forms for derivative trades, and no one had them. And they were like, what are we, what is it? And it turned out that the swap advisor had all this, and the swap advisor was overcharging the city, and there was, you know, we had to get rid of him, and there was all this, you know... uh, so, Philly had the same issues that I was seeing with other places yeah. um, when I worked at Bayer. And, you know, it started out with issues on the bond deals, but then it became an issue about the city's cash mm-hmm. and cash levels within uh, about another year. Wow. And that was, that was very trying.
1: Yeah. So, how, how did you approach that?
0: There wasn't enough cash. <laughs> so, basically, what happened, it was this perfect storm where city lost a few, I don't want to say a few hundred million, but Uh, There was about a few hundred million a year hole that opened up in the city's budget through the Great Recession. And what was decided was that there would be an increase in the sales tax and a two- or three-year pension deferral, which was fully made up with interest, which I'm proud of. But that sales tax needed state approval, and the state took some time to approve it. And without that approval, we didn't have money. And so it became, and then because we didn't have the sales tax approval, we couldn't enter the market for the usual annual borrowing for short-term cash needs. So we then had to say, okay, we're gonna run out of cash and and that cannot happen because we have to make payroll. So we're gonna halt vendor payments. I think what, what I didn't expect and in hindsight would have done a little differently is we announced it and it really freaked out the market. Bloomberg and the Wall Street Journal, and everyone was like, city of Philadelphia, cash dropped, halts all vendor payments. And it became this big news story. I think we probably could have done it a little bit quieter. Um, But basically what we did was we just halted uh, the vendor payments. A few companies asked for interest. I remember Pico, a few others. I was like, no, we're not giving out interest. This is like a crisis, like deal with it. (laughs) And that's what we did. We didn't let anyone, I, I was like, we're not paying interest. Just like deal with it, like be a corporate a good corporate citizen, we're in this crisis together. Some businesses were smaller and would make specific petitions right. to get paid. And so we would meet, me and the finance director, a few others would meet once a week and go through the requests. If it was a small company yeah. and it was about to go under, we paid it.
1: As this happened, as you were you know, in this period, did it feel like there was an end in sight? Did it feel like things were getting better or?
0: No. It's interesting because J.P. Morgan eventually came in and offered us a private loan and that turned the tide. And I explained my sort of as the treasurer, my relationship with these these banks during the recession was they caused this whole thing, right? They caused all this, all these issues. And then, you know, here we were not being able to pay our vendors. and. There was a lot of conversations. A lot of our derivatives were done by J.P. Morgan. So there was a lot of, you know, tough conversations between me as the treasurer and J.P., but then they actually were the ones that came in and said, we'll give you a loan, $200 million, $250 million at a decent interest rate, and that made a big difference.
1: That's so, good, at least.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, I, I feel like I couldn't uh, – I was complaining, complaining, complaining about them, but then – when they did that, I was like, okay, there's some relief. And that actually carried us through, let us pay our vendors. And mm-hmm. and uh, then the state passed the budget and passed our sales tax. And then it started to feel like, okay, we're turning the tide. Right. It, it was a tough time.
1: So now we look back at the last 10 years and it's been nothing but, to me anyway, prosperity, growth, you know, improvement. How did your perspective change over that time?
0: Well, it's interesting. So I was budget director actually for five years. And towards the end of the Nutter administration, I really began to see that, you know, everyone talked about, okay, Philadelphia is a poor city. There's not enough you know money to do everything we wanna do as a city. For a few years, you know, what I was doing was just having to cut. Yeah. And some of the cuts, you know, the departments will come back and say, you know, if we're cut this degree, we're gonna, you know, have to cut back on services or hours at rec centers or, you know, just the quality of life goes down. And at the same time, the city had more phone lines than employees. Let's figure out if, if there's more phone lines than employees.
1: That's a problem. We that's probably a problem. don't need all those. We probably
0: <laughs> don't need them all, right? And there's a lot of little things like that. Yeah. Okay, This isn't the way to optimize the city as a a business that provides the best possible service. So I think I started to think more and more along the lines of efficiency rather than just cutting. And I started to also see some of the politics and some of the decision making above me that sometimes was frustrating.
1: Yeah. Do you remember the first moment you started thinking about running for public office?
0: I remember starting to think about it. But then at first, I thought it was just a crazy idea.
1: <laughs> <Yeah>.
0: <laughs> because why running for office, the way I looked at it at the time was, you know, there's people that work for government and then people that run for office. And they're two different types of people. And And I don't know, I came in with that perspective. And I think a lot of people that work for the city would feel that. And there's a lot of really good people that work for the city. I mean, one thing that I really learned and saw through my time working for the city is how many people that work for the city that are working to do the best thing for the city. And then sometimes things get screwed up from the top, from the politics of something. Mm -hmm. And so I think that I started to think more and more about running when I was pushing for something to happen internally. And I wasn't able to accomplish what
1: I wanted to accomplish. I was
0: told to stand down. I don't have a problem voicing a concern, voicing my opinion.
1: So then how did it go from this crazy idea in your head to I'm running?
0: There were different moments, one or two moments during the Nutter administration. And I started to think, you know, some of these decisions just don't make sense and I I need to run for office. But then I thought that was crazy. But then I worked for the year for for Mayor Kenney and I enjoyed working for him just like I enjoyed working for Nutter, but at the same time, there were also one or two things that happened that I thought, this is just insane. And if I, I left the private sector and took a massive pay cut, because that's not the most important thing in the world. And to me, I mean, I was happy every day working for the city, but if I'm not making the impact, I might as well go back to the private sector if I can't have that impact. But then I thought, but I don't want to go back to the private sector. Then I thought, well, then there's no only one option, and that's to run for office, which is sort of crazy too. I mean, a lot of people think I make crazy decisions <laughs> <laughs> because because each de- each decision I make uh, gets me less money.
1: Uh, <laughs> <laughs> right. well, did anybody tell you that you were crazy? You told yourself for a while that that it was a crazy idea. Oh,
0: a lot of people told me I was crazy. Yeah, like most people I spoke to would s- said, "What? Like." There were a few people that said, wow, that would be awesome. But I didn't speak to many people before I decided to run. I think because I thought, if I'm going to do this, I just want to do it and then be told I'm crazy after I've already announced
1: Yeah. So does being told you're crazy provide motivation or demotivation?
0: Well, to me, it's like, well, what do I have to lose? So to me, it's like, yeah, I have to resign. So I'm resigning a job. But I'm not happy with the impact I'm having. And I think the city can run itself better. So if I lose, I lose. It's not the end of the world.
1: How did that conversation go with Mayor Kenny?
0: He actually, when I told him, was supportive of me doing what I wanted to do. Yeah.
1: So then you start campaigning.
0: So yeah, um, I uh, did have a political consultant uh, who the campaign group, who's actually pretty well known, uh, does some national campaigns uh, based out of Philly and they actually told me that I had a one-in-three shot of winning. And I thought that sounded horrible.
1: Yeah. It's and
0: not?
1: No. So that's what... So <laughs> I'm like, oh, no.
0: They said, oh, no, that's great odds running against an incumbent.
1: What gave you those odds, do you think?
0: So the way I looked at it and the way they were looking at it was the incumbent had been in office for a long time. He'd done nothing horribly wrong. But did not have a particularly large amount of money raised. And and there is, money in politics is there now. And until it changes at the national level, we have to live with that, unfortunately. So I think that there was, uh, this was right after Trump won the presidency. And there was a real angst and and feeling of wanting change. I think that... I was extremely experienced for the job, if I could get elected. I felt that people in Philly wanted change. So I felt this feeling of, you know, this old guard, this political cronyism, you know, you hear about another elected leader going to jail like every other month. People are tired of that. And Philly is this amazing city that is taking off in all these ways, right? If you look at sort of the restaurants and the tech industry and, and development, and all this great stuff, but yet the government seems like back in the, you know, dark ages or something with, with, with the sort of backroom deal right. stuff. So to me, I, th- I just felt that people want to change. So I said if I could somehow communicate this change and who I am and what change I want to bring, I think I can win. So I think the one in three part is that it's just hard to beat an incumbent.
1: Yeah. So let's let's fast forward to election. night. First off, what are your expectations at that point? Do you think you were going to win?
0: You know, there were a few moments leading up to election day where I thought, wow, I might actually win. This could
1: actually happen. This
0: could. What were those moments? Um, it was moments of feeling connected to large groups of people. There was, on election day itself, my campaign manager and I uh, went to about over 12 or 13 different polling places. And each polling place, people were so excited, like, that's Rebecca Reinhart, she's running for controller. People were like high-fiving me. There was a poll worker wearing an Alan Buckovitz T-shirt who was my opponent. And he said, I just voted for you. And I said, you voted for me, you're wearing an Alan Buckovitz T-shirt. He said, yeah, they're paying me, but I'm voting for you. (laughs) (laughs) And I thought, oh my God, I might actually win this. That energy that happened in every polling place, I remember turning to my campaign manager and saying, we might win. And she was like, I know. Like it was this, oh my God, this energy is palpable. Like we can feel it. And there were moments before that uh, community, uh, one or two community meetings, one in Southwest Philly, where the crowd was just like so excited. I got endorsed by the black clergy. And of course, Ed Rendell and I got the endorsement of the Enquirer. So I was building this momentum, but it was really this election day all day. It was just, There was so much energy um, around my candidacy that I was like, oh my God, this is amazing. I might actually win.
1: And then tell me about the moment you found out that you did win.
0: Oh yeah, so uh, we were all in a bar, a Strangelove's. I don't know if you know Strangelove's. You know (laughs) Strangelove's, okay. So we were upstairs. uh, The way the returns come in, it's on a website that you have to keep hitting refresh. (laughs) Refresh, right. (laughs) And the first thing, you know, we saw it at like 9 or 9.30 was 40% of the return in. And I was up like 56, 57%, you know, to um, 42% or so. And I thought, wow, that's amazing. Like, that's really amazing, you know. But, you know, I I, I was still sort of nervous about, okay, like, what wards of the city have come in, what wards haven't come in yet. That's important. It all happened really quickly. Like, so we're there and... Uh, the AP announces that I won. I thought, oh, my God, is that really it? But, you know, you hear these cases where, you know, one news agency, like, announces you win and then the others say, no, it's really not true. (laughs) So we were still, like, all in a state of shock. Like, did this really just happen? Is this really happening? And then my phone rang. And my political director uh, answered the phone because he had my phone because I was like, I can't deal with my phone tonight. He said, hello, and person said, this is Alan. Can I speak with Rebecca? He said, Alan who? Like not even thinking that uh, it was my opponent. And he said, this is Alan Buckowitz calling. And he handed me the phone. And i it was surreal. He just said, I'm calling to concede and, and you've won the election. And I just was like, oh, my God, I can't believe this. And it actually, that moment was caught on video uh, and is up there online somewhere. But I, it, that was just you know, an unbelievable moment of, oh my God, we just won. I can't believe
1: it. After all that, all the campaigning, it actually happened.
0: Yeah, really amazing. And all the support from everybody in Philly. It's really amazing.
1: So you're the first woman city controller.
0: Yes, yes.
1: What does that mean to you?
0: It's important. I, uh, look, I I ran for office as the most qualified candidate. I also happen to be a woman. And I think that, Women are underrepresented in political positions, in elected leadership. And uh, it's starting to change, but there needs to be different voices. I mean, I think that I'm sure that my view as a woman probably impacted um, my office's decision to do the audit of sexual misconduct policies, payouts and procedures. I, I don't know if a man would have done that. Not that there aren't very amazing, sensitive men. But I think that the more diversity, race and ethnicity and gender that's yeah. brought to a position, the better. And look, I think it's important for our, you know, girls and, and daughters uh, to have role models. Yeah. You know, I always think I don't, I'm not really like a politician, but then what does that mean?
1: Yeah. you yeah. Know?
0: <laughs> <laughs> You know, I'm just this normal human being, which I think is part of what people want from elected leadership right now is just people. Just you
1: want to relate? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so, right, right, right.
0: And so I think every time I think, "Oh, I'm sort of like not acting like uh, the part or something," and I think, "Well, what part is that?" I'm. I was elected to be genuine and authentic, and that's who I am. And and being a woman, and I'm a mom. Uh, I have a eight and a half year old daughter, so that's important to me too to sort of forge the the path and have more women. Uh, follow absolutely
1: yeah. hopefully it it won't be exceptional it's just women are everywhere you know what i mean That's like it, the it shouldn't way, yeah. be a big deal because it, there should be women everywhere yeah, you know, who right. should be represented right that actually reflects you know the population absolutely so what would you say is a common misconception about you
0: a common uh misconception of me when i w- entered office that because i worked for mayor kenny that i would be with him on things. And to me, I I never thought that was never my intent. My intent was to do my job and the controllers, the audit function. Uh, So I think there was a misconception. So when I actually started to do my job, (laughs) started to stand up to things and call out things that that weren't right, Um, some people were surprised, absolutely. And I think another one is just, there were certain decisions or things that happened when I worked for Mayor Nutter, you know, people always, you know, they think they know you, but there's always more to learn about people, right? And I think that's true. The Something that happened early on, on from me being city controller is that the unions had a negative, at first, a negative view of me because that I worked for Mayor Nutter and that they didn't get raised, people didn't get raises for over five years. Right. And we had some really open, I had some really frank conversations in the union halls after I won the Democratic nomination about that, you know, some things I would have done differently and some things, you know, that I want, that the workers of the city are the backbone of the city and I do support them. I think that there was some surprise about the way I was open to Just sitting down and having those uncomfortable or difficult conversations. But I think that's so important because, you know, we have to move forward. Yeah.
1: If you could send a message to yourself in the past, butterfly effect aside, what would you say and at what point would you send it?
0: It's really important to take risk and not any risk, but strategic risk and not be afraid to fail. And I think that early on when I was, you know, I was too nervous coming right out of college and with the the first few decisions you know I made or didn't make I was nervous that every decision was going to be the rest of my life and and what if I failed and all that and I think with time I really began to realize that first of all there is never a decision that prevents you from doing other things but then also that it's okay to fail and take that risk if we don't take that risk we're not going to grow big you know we're not going to
1: get there yeah. What's the most encouraging thing you see about Philadelphia today?
0: I think Philadelphia is just so amazing. I feel uh, there's so much going on, whether it's cultural or restaurants or music or uh, small businesses popping up. I think that there's so much there in Philly. And it's it's growing. Uh, And I feel that more and more when I go to other cities, I think. Philly's better than
1: this. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my gosh. I'm so glad you said that. Every time I go to a new city, I come home and I'm like, yeah, this is better. Yeah. (laughs) No, I
0: I actually, you know, and nothing against these other cities. But... uh, Love
1: visiting, but... Right. Gonna keep living here.
0: Yeah. And the energy and then the the people of this city. There's a grit and sort of a self-deprecating humor. Uh, It just... and everywhere, if you're all the different neighborhoods and i've gone I go to all the different neighborhoods, I've gone to all of them campaigning, I go to community meetings and and I just love the people here. People are amazing,
1: finally, if you could get one message to each and every Philadelphian, give it be it a tweet, a billboard email plane in the sky, one message that every Philadelphian could receive and ponder, what would you say?
0: I would say that our local government can be better and that I'm working to do it and I'm seriously and urgently working to do it. I think a lot of people really don't think, they think, oh, Philly government. Yep. Uh, oh, it's always gonna be this way. Helpless. It's not gonna be this way, okay? It's not. I mean, I am idealistic in terms of what I think government should be. When I look back, you know, when you think about the Constitution and Jefferson and, and all of the founders of our country, mm. And what they said about representation. We have to change the city's government in terms of making it run for the people of the city. And so I'm completely driven by that. And we're going to get there. We're going to get there.
1: If you want to learn more about what Controller Reinhardt has done since assuming the office of the city controller, you might want to check out Conrad Benner's podcast, Streets Department. Totally coincidentally, earlier this week, Conrad and Rebecca released an episode that pretty much picks up where this one left off and goes into the things the controller's office has done since being elected. Check it out via the link in the show notes. If you like the show, of course, be sure to subscribe and follow along on social media at Pod Philly Who. Philly Who is a Q9 production with editing by Max Graham, Artwork by Lauren Carhart and original music by Lee Rosevere For Philly Who, my name is Kevin Schmidlin. Until next time.